So go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And as you're turning there in James, we're going to start in verse 12 in a second, but what we've covered recently, there's kind of the verse we're going to start with today, verse 12, is kind of a conclusion to that and also a transition. It's a great transitional verse. But up until this point, we've learned in verse 1 of James chapter 1, the audience, the audiences to Jewish Christians who are dispersed, that through various historic events, these Jewish Christians are on all different types of land. And they're going through different trials as well. And so in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we've seen that you can have joy during a trial, that you could go through a trial and actually experience joy. And he gives us this solution or this equation that you have to essentially lean into God. It says, let endurance have its full effect, because the opposite is that as I go through a trial, I could push God away. I could not let endurance have its full effect, and so I won't experience that maturity, that completion, that joy. And not only joy, but verse 5 talks about wisdom in a trial, that as I go through a, a trial, some difficulty in my life, and the question we would easily ask is, why God? Why are you letting this happen? Or, or a myriad of other questions that we may have for God as we seek wisdom going through a trial. He says, you can have that wisdom, but you have to ask, and you have to ask in faith. And by faith, he doesn't mean that, mean that you just say, well, God, I want this to be stopped, and I trust you'll stop it. That's not real faith. That's, that's hoping that it'll stop it, and he may and he may not. Faith is, God, I'm going to trust you whether you stop it or not. Whether I keep going through this or whether this all ceases, I trust you. And then by verse 9, he gives us this, this first picture of the trial that they're going through when he talks to the brother of humble circumstances, that not only are they dispersed, these Jewish Christians, but they're in poverty. And as we'll learn as we go through the book of James, they are up against some corrupt people in authority, some corrupt rich people. And as we talk about those things, I'll remind you that God is not against wealth. In fact, if you look in Scripture, some of the most famous and useful people for God's kingdom, they're useful partially because he gifted them with an ability to administer. I think of Joseph. I think of Daniel. That he gave them the ability to administer things, including wealth. It's not the wealth that is bad. It is when wealth becomes an idol. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so he has this really the pronouncement for the humble person as you're going through a trial, a person in humble circumstances, that there's a real exaltation in the Lord, both through a maturing of the faith, but also the eventual kingdom of God. But then for the rich person, if I am boasting in my riches, I'm setting up myself for failure because earthly status is an illusion. Earthly status is an illusion, and spiritual wealth is greater because it lasts. Well, today we're talking about the next test, the test of sin, and how to play the long game of faith, how to persist and resist for the true prize. And so I want to start with this question, are you good at thinking long term? Are you good at, at maybe getting out of the captivity of the moment and thinking about long term. I'm going to begin this message today by telling you about a time when I was right and my wife was wrong. <laughs> the, I, I like to tell my wife sometimes that I told her last night, I said, hey, I've got an analogy I'm going to use. I'm going to tell a story about you. And she's just like, oh, great. And, and all the ladies in here that are, um, you know, you're wondering if you're going to still support your preacher after this story. And all the guys in there wondering how brave your preacher truly is. Um, 
I just want to say that my wife has one of those memories that uh, it's like photographic. Either that or she's a really good liar. It's one of the two. And, and she'll just say like, I, we were doing something on such and such date. And, and she'll say, yeah, I was sitting there and I was wearing this and you were wearing that. And I'm just like, I'm not even sure that day existed. And you know what I was wearing. That's, that's just insane. So what I'm asking all the ladies in the room, just give me this, right? Just this, just this one, just give it to me. So this is kind of our pathway to getting engaged and getting married. I was trying to see the long road. Now, as part of my testimony, I was kind of running from the call to ministry. I felt God called me to be a pastor early in life, and I didn't want to surrender to it. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. But one thing I knew I wanted to do is I wanted to marry Danielle, my wife. And so I'm a very practical person. I thought, well, how? How could I do that? I'm a college student. I can't afford anything. I don't really know what I want to do, so I'm going to enlist in the military, and at least I'll be able to uh, make some money, and we'll be able to get married. Well, as you can imagine, a girl who just graduated from high school, that's a scary proposition to, to think about the person that you want to marry. You're, they're getting ready to go join the military, and you don't know what's going to happen. They can Once you sign up, they can really make you go do anything. In fact, um, I would have been deployed when we were supposed to be getting married if it weren't for a friend who really wanted to deploy. And he's like, I'll go for you. And so he did. And so I was able to get married. So her concerns were right. But I did, I said to her in this conversation, something like this, I can't afford to marry you. <laughs> Not her specifically. Don't get mad at me later. I'm just saying to get married in general, I couldn't afford that. I wasn't at a place in life where I had a job of any meaningful substance where I could support a family. And so I asked her to take the long view. I said, in six months, seven months, something like that, we'll be married. Now, the difficulty is, of course, that short-term time in between, that you have to go through the hard things. You have to go through a whole month and a half during basic training where it's essentially silence. That it's almost like I don't exist anymore. You just, you can't talk to me. Or going through technical school that I'm just going to be gone for a couple months in a totally different state. And so there will be months before you even see me again, let alone thinking of getting married. There are definitely difficult things in the short term, but the long term was worth it. The long term was what I had in mind. In our study of James, we've been talking about trials and today we'll talk again about trials, but also temptations. Both are difficult. For your spiritual walk, you might be ready to give up in a trial. But then perhaps it's not just a trial, it's a temptation. The temptation is your trial. And you're being led astray because you simply desire something else more than the Christian life. So whether you're struggling to keep going or dealing with temptation, this passage today is for you. You're going to see in Scripture how to persist in the faith and resist the temptation for the true prize. So let's look at James chapter 1 and look at verse 12 with me, please. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, as we read this first verse that we're going to cover today, what I want to talk to first is the person who just wants to give up. 
If you've ever been in that situation as you're going through trials and he's getting ready to transition to the trial of sin, but right now he is still very much talking about just trials in general and to the one who wants to give up. I had this uh, years ago, the dog's gone now, but we had this dog named Lily. I think they have a picture of her. So that's Lily. She's like a minute. She's a miniature pincher, ball of energy, ball of muscle until her later years, like stayed the same size, but less muscly. Um, Well, she was just, she's just like a dog that just, it's like she's made of electricity. There are times where she'd just bolt all over the house. In fact, when, uh, when my wife would go out of the house, I got Lily trained where I'd say, mama's home when Danielle came home. And Lily would just do this thing where she just had an explosion of energy and she'd run. So we had our couches at an angle and she wouldn't run on the seats. She would run on the backs of the couch. Somehow her centrifugal force keeping her up. Well, there was one time that I said, mama's home. And she ran and lunged for a couch, but she actually jumped over it And there was a window behind the couch, and she rammed the window, and then she fell behind the couch. That's a dog that had that much energy, like all I had to say was mama's home, and she's like splattering against the window. (laughs) Unless I wanted her to actually go exercise, right? Like if I wanted to actually take her out, and it was not her decision. So I thought dogs wanted to go for walks. I took her out, and again, maybe I'm not a fun person sometimes, but I could take a dog for a walk, and it's bad when your own dog doesn't enjoy a walk with you. That does tell you you're not very fun. But So I'm going for a walk, and she just decides she doesn't want to, so she sits down when I'm trying to walk her. And so I, you know, I'm trying to pull. Well, then she does, decides sitting down is not enough. She lays down, but not like on her belly. She like lays on the side like, you're just going to have to drag me. Like, I want you to know I'm not moving at all. So eventually I just had to pick her up and walk. And we have kind of medium-sized dogs now. So I don't know what I'd have to do because that'd be harder to walk a mile or something like carrying your stubborn dog who won't even go for a walk with you. And so I did that with Lily and had to carry her home. And I just thought, sometimes we just want to give up. This dog that has all this energy that could do all these things just is like, I'm going to quit. A dog who I thought wanted to go for a walk is just like, I'm not doing it today. I wonder if you ever at that moment, at that point, that life has just beat you up so much that you just want to quit. You, you just don't want to endure. It's been hard. Your life feels a mess. Everything feels frantic or there's just so many broken things around you that you just realize I'm powerless. And, and where's God? Where, why aren't you trying to fix these things? Why aren't you helping me through these things? I believe that's who verse 12 is written for. That type of person. Look at verse 12 as in comparison to verses 2 through 4 that he already covered. Look at verse 2. It says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So he starts off there. Instead of blessed is the one who endures, he says, Consider it a great joy. But then the topic is still trials. Same word. Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So as your faith is tested, as you go through some difficult trial, he says, as you lean into God, as you let endurance have its full effect, then there's a reward at the end. It's growth, it's maturity, it's blessing in that way. And going to verse 12, using many of the same words, he says, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test 
he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, we could misunderstand this. We could hear this as, well, I have to stand the test to achieve the crown of life, almost making it sound like you earn it. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, he finishes the sentence. Who receives the crown of life? He says that God has promised to those who love him. Those who love him are Christians. A crown of life is promised to Christians. So what he's not saying is you have to go earn this crown of life. What he is saying is endure. Because at the end of these trials, there is a crown of life waiting for you. To the person that you are stuck in the short term. You're stuck in the, in the immediate context. You are a victim or a captive of what's going on right now. To the person that is just feeling so bogged down because everything just feels like it's attacking you or falling apart or your burdens are too heavy or, or you've got great anxiety. To that person, he's saying, endure. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Why? Because there is a crown of life at the end. Now in Scripture, there's a lot of crowns mentioned. You have in 1 Corinthians 9, an imperishable crown. In 1 Thessalonians 2, there's a crown of rejoicing or boasting. Here in James, and then again in Revelation 2, there's a crown of life. In 2 Timothy 4, there's a crown of righteousness. In 1 Peter 5, there's a crown of glory. Now I don't think those crowns are mentioned a lot, and sometimes they're literal, but these, I believe, are symbolic. I don't think I'm going to have a crown put on my head that gives me life. I think I'll have life. And he's essentially saying you are almost anointed or ordained or, or transformed to a being that has life. This will be the, the thing that ornates you, the thing that, that you're known by, the thing, the status that you have, like being crowned with it. You'll have life. It's the promise of the long term. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To the person that is ready to give up, Scripture says to you, endure for the true prize persist. Endure for the true prize. The true prize is this crown of life. It is life eternal. It is that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's difficult in the moment as you're going through a trial, a struggle, whatever it may be, whatever thing has you down and anxious and, and feeling broken and battered and beat up, whatever thing it is, what Scripture would say is not that those are unimportant, but by comparison to eternity, they're a blink. What God would have you do is take the long view, the eternal view, the view of knowing that God's things last forever. And as you seek for strength to go through something difficult, he would say, there is better waiting for you. So then he goes on in verse 13. And now we shift in the language. Verse 13 says this, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now, we have two words there, trial and tempted. And what's interesting is both can mean just a trial, but it's translated tempted because it's modified by that word evil. 
And so that's how we know that he has changed his topic slightly, that there is a different type of trial, and that trial is temptation for sin. And now for them specifically, uh, I won't read it today, but if you were to go down to verse 19, you'd see one sin that they are going through, one sin that they, or temptation that they are struggling with, and it's anger. Because they are dealing with corrupt people in power, corrupt people of wealth and means who can make their life difficult. They are, they are scattered. They're not a people in their homeland. They are going through a difficult circumstance. And so a temptation that they have is anger. But what he says in verse 13 is, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. You see, we see something in those two verses. And to the first person that we talked about, what if I just want to give up? That's, that's some of us. But others, it's not about giving up. For others, it's, well, I'm actually pursuing something else other than God. There's something else that's in my life that I want that more than God. I, I have something else in my life, something else I desire more than God. I may not care about God at all. So I'm chasing after these things. That's what I care about. I, uh, I have a weekly struggle on Friday. Friday's my Sabbath day. I, I take Friday morning especially. I've said that many times from this pulpit. By Saturday, I'm thinking about Sunday and especially Saturday night. I'm thinking about message and order of service, things like that. And so Saturday morning is my Sabbath. I try to do almost nothing productive, like almost nothing. And so on Saturday, I, I, uh, I have this temptation and it is for waffles. <laughs> Most, that's not what you thought I was going to say, is it? Most of the week, I have pretty much the same breakfast. I have a protein shake and I pour a lot of veggies in there so that I never have to actually taste vegetables. It's a really good system. Recommend that to uh, almost anyone. And so I have a protein shake like Monday through Thursday. That's what I'm going to have. But on Friday, Friday could be waffle day. But sometimes I have this thought, maybe I should go for a walk or a run or exercise, something like that. And I know that if I go do that, I'll feel good about the day. And then I could come back and have waffles but to be honest, on Friday, I kind of want waffles right now. I've been eating veggie shakes all week, and on Friday, I kind of want a waffle right then. We all understand those little desires, right? The little temptations. Now, God's not against us having a waffle day. He's not against us having uh, or even enjoying his creation within uh, moderation and within reason, things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am saying, though, is we understand desire. We understand being drawn away to do something else. So look what this says again. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. I want to point out some realities of sin. Verse 13 says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. The reality is there are some people, even in this room, who are stuck in some sort of addiction or sin, and maybe it's a public sin, maybe it's a private sin. What you ought to know first and foremost is that sin is not of God. And origins matter. It matters where something comes from. If, if you have a desire and it is from something else other than the eternal God, then you ought to be cautious with it. That's not to say again that we can't enjoy life, but there are certain things we know are unholy. And there are some people even in this room who are stuck on unholy things. And what God would have you know is that's not from me. It's not his. So look where it comes from. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed 
by his own evil desire. You hear all that language. It's just powerful language. Tempted, drawn away, enticed by his own evil desire. There we get to hear the origin of this thing, that our flesh cries out for certain things. There may be innocent ones, like I may want a waffle day, but then there's all sorts of temptations that are evil, that we know are evil. And what Scripture would have you know is not only are those not from God, but sin is a deceit and a trap. Now, in my career or ministry as a pastor, I've counseled with just gobs and gobs of people. And if I ever talk to someone, like if they come to me to talk about sin, and maybe it's something that that other people would say, that's an exciting sin to do, that's a fun thing to do. But when they come to talk to me, they're never talking about feelings of liberty, They're never talking about feelings of of freedom and and how wonderful life is. They talk to me about, I have this sin and I can't get rid of it. I'm trapped. I don't want it. I want it out of my life, but I keep going back to it. That is because sin is a trap. It is a deceitful thing and it ensnares us. And so there is someone here today that has had a sin in their life, or maybe someone who hasn't cared about God at all, and you don't think of God at all, and you'd rather pursue all sorts of other things that you think will be greater than God, and what Scripture is saying is that is a trap. It is a lie. It is not the thing that will make you happy. It is not the thing that will fill you up, and so get rid of it. And so then he goes on to verse 15. So we know verse 13, it's not from God. We know verse 14, it's a deceitful trap. In verse 15, we get to see the end of it. It says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Again, do you hear that language? Desire, conceived, birth, fully grown. Like those those should be positive words. Because if you thought of a young couple gets married and they conceive a baby and they get to go in nine months, they're going to have this wonderful blessing from God, this gift from God. It's like they've had this investment that again, for that, you have to have a kind of long-term view that nine months later we get this joy and then there's a whole life ahead of us. And it's an exciting thing. And it used that language so that we can know when we pursue things that are not of God, there is a conception there too. There is a a fruit from that too, a byproduct from that too. And it tells us what it is, those last five words. It gives birth to death. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. There is no end to sin other than death. That's what it does. That's how, that's how death was introduced into the world was through sin, That's what the judgment will be about in the end, is about sin. That's why we die. That's why we're mortal creatures, is because of sin. And so here's the deceit that has gone on in our mind, is I can think, I will pursue these other things other than God, and those will make me happy. Those will fill me up. Well, the foolishness, of course, immediately is obvious that it's not eternal. But even to know that the end of those things is death, ought to speak to me about the value of those things. You see, I could live for all sorts of things in this world. And if I live for anything other than God, I'm living for something that will end. And if I've thought that sin will fill me up, sin will satisfy, I'm going to live how I want apart from the word of God. I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. If I think that, then I've aligned myself 
with sin. And sin ends in death. So what do we do? 1 Corinthians 10 says this to the Christian. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. I speak to the Christian first. I'll speak in a second to the person in the room who is not a follower of Jesus. To the Christian, us saying something like, I'm just that way, or that's the way that I am, or I can't help it. What God would say in his word is that, yes, you can. He's given you a way out. What God wants us to do is put to death those things that are of the old nature, the old man, the old life. He'd love for us to put on the new nature, the one that is born again and should live for God. What he would have you do is resist to the first person we talked about in verse 12, he wants you to persist. He wants you to know that there's a crown of life. But to the person who your trial is sin, the, the thing that you're dealing with, the thing that you're going through, it is a temptation. To that person, he would say resist. In fact, in the book of James, we're going to see later on in chapter 4, he's going to say resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have this false understanding that if I have an impulse, I have to give in to it. I, I have to. It's the only way to be happy. If, if I just have an impulse, I can't help myself. I have to go to these things. And what God would say is, yes, you can resist. In fact, he has a, a better way. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards said this, God created our desires, passions, and emotions and did not intend us to lose those at conversion. He just wants us to direct them away from sin and toward God. You see, it's not a bad thing to have desires and passion. Those aren't bad things. It's not a bad thing to have cravings. It's bad to give in to sin. What God would have us do is live for him because he is eternal. He is worthwhile. He'd have me throw my passion into that, into being the kind of a man and father and pastor and, and Christian that his word tells me to be. He'd have me put to death the things that, that don't honor him, the things that would seek to entrap me. To, to enslave me, to, to make me live in a way that doesn't honor him. He would have me put those things to death. Now, what about the person here who is not a Christian? If you don't follow Jesus, what I would say is you are living your life for a false prize. The second point on your notes is this. Beware of the false prize. Beware of the false prize. First, I asked you to endure for the true prize, but second... Beware of the false prize. To the non-Christian, if you don't have Jesus, you are living for a false prize. You are living for something that won't last. Even if you have just an extraordinary long life. We have, I think, three ladies in this church who are 99 years old or right around there. That's extraordinary, but that's gone in a second. I think they'd be the first to tell you that, that 99 years, it's really nothing. If you're living for something of this world whether it's sinful or not, but if it's a sin, if you think, I'm going to live this life and this is what will make me happy, what I'm saying, you're living for a false prize. What God invites you to is the crown of life. And again, that's, that's symbolic. It's saying what he invites you to is eternal life. And that life comes through his son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And you can be saved by him if you'll put your faith and your trust in him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Christian, endure for the true prize and don't be fooled by a false prize. Persist 
and resist. Now we're going to go into our time of prayer and I'm going to be praying for endurance and I ask you to either from your seats or down here to pray for that kind of endurance, to resist and persist. But if there's someone here who needs to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we're going to have pastors come to these two tables on the side, our next step tables. I'd love for you to go talk to them and ask them, how can I be saved? I want to give my life to Christ. How can I be saved? Or maybe you need to take another step of faith. You need to be baptized. You need to become a member of a church. You need something else. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you just have questions. That's what those tables are for. Let's pray.